truth meant whatever everybody decided it meant in their own sort of niche. I'm finding that's kind of maybe a more interesting thing to explore than apocalypses, although those are fun too. And I guess that's a kind of apocalypse as well, isn't it? Print friends, and welcome to the 99th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and you can find it all at pinecopperlime.com. Print friends, this is probably where you're used to me talking about our Patreon. However, I think today I'd like to talk about something a little different. Transcripts. Transcripts of Pine Copper Lime from our archive of nearly 100 episodes. You've asked for them, we've wanted to be able to give them, but to be honest, we just haven't had that cash in hand to do so. So we're turning to you in celebration of the upcoming 100th episode, to ask for help in making this happen. We've set up a fundraiser so we can get the money together, and that money will go towards an automated transcription service, as well as an intern we have lined up to clean up the text that the robot gives us. So please check out the link in the show notes, and let's all help make Pine Copper Lime a bit more accessible to printmakers around the world. It's a pretty modest goal, so even a buck or two really will go a long way towards making it happen. Print friends. Approaching episode 100 made us do a little soul-searching here at Pine Copper Lime. We've looked back over almost three years of work and asked ourselves, what is this show really all about? Pine Copper Lime is a reference to the materials that allow us to pull the prints that we make. But this show isn't just about materials. If there's one thing that's been repeated over and over, it's that we've all come for the art, but stayed for the people. So we've been working hard on a bit of rebranding for our 100th episode to reflect what the show truly is all about. So next week, while the show and the Instagram feed will all stay the same, we'll be releasing new cover art, a new logo, and a new name. One that actually makes sense. Thanks for being on this journey with us, print friends. We hope to be on it with you for years to come. Printmaking forever. Shun the non-believers. Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. Products like the Armheinz 1619 high-quality, low-cost paper made in collaboration with a historic paper mill near the city of Arnheim. Our editor, Timothy Fauschak, swears by it for printing lithographs, and our friend and guest of episode number four, Miles Calvert, evangelizes its use yearly, encouraging his students to participate in Speedball's New Impressions contest, where they produce work in every print medium. So if you're looking for an affordable paper that can support whatever kind of inky ideas you want to throw at it, then head on over to speedballart.com to find out where you can pick up the start of your next edition. My guest this week is John Renzella, a woodcut artist in Taiwan. We'll talk about David Bowie, coming to printmaking through comic books, and how to get your mom to let you read them, 
adventuring around the world, large-scale installations, the apocalypse, and whether or not truth actually exists. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to turn and face the strange with John Ronzella. Hi, John. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? I'm really good. I'm good. It's wonderful to be chatting with another print friend in Southeast Asia. That's always an exciting connection to make. And I Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was so happy when you reached out via email because I I didn't know your work and I didn't know that you were working in a global perspective just down the road from Bangkok. Um, And so I'm excited to learn more about your story and share some of the really interesting projects you've been working on with people. Oh, thanks. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah. So please start us off here with introducing yourself and letting people know who you are, where you are, and what you do. So I'm John Renzella. I'm primarily a woodcut artist. I also do tattoos and comic books. Uh, but uh, I've been living in Taiwan for since, I guess, since 2008. And I've run a kind of small nonprofit art space here since 2010. So I have like a studio and there's a few other artists who have studio spaces here and we run this place together. I did an apprenticeship at a local tattoo studio here in Taiwan. I did like a five-year apprenticeship and I've been doing my own thing for four or five years since then. And I also uh, live stream my woodcuts on Twitch. Great. So where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? I grew up all over the all over the U.S. Mm-hmm. I'm originally from New Hampshire, but I, I moved pretty much every two years as a kid. So I lived in Virginia, South Carolina, Indiana, uh, back to back to New Hampshire. I lived in Minneapolis for five years for college. Uh, and as a kid, it was it was all comic books, like hundred percent, hundred percent comic books. So if I was I wasn't reading comic books, I was drawing comic books poorly, but <laughs> but consistently. <laughs> so that was my childhood art experience was all that. Yeah. What comic books did you like? What What did you follow? Oh, everything. Mo- mostly DC, but mm-hmm. but pretty much everything. Uh, anything I could get my hands on. Yeah. Uh, there was. A great one time when I was a kid, we were in some place in Boston, and there was just like some guy selling a bunch of boxes of comics for really cheap. Mm. And like, I begged my parents, and they 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 threw in twenty bucks and got like these huge boxes of comics, and they were full of, you know, titles I had never seen before, old stuff from the eighties, and uh, yeah, it was just everything, everything I get my hands on, I was into. That's, I think I had a similar experience uh, going somewhere, you know, probably visiting some larger city than the one I grew up in with my folks and just seeing, you know, boxes of five cent comic books and just being like, oh, please, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, you're, you're definitely not the first and I'm sure you won't be the last artist on the podcast who points to comic books as an inspiration. I definitely think that that's not not a coincidence because they are, you know, entertainment and they're, they're mm-hmm. something that, that I think as a kid, you kind of get the sense that this is for me. And, but of course the drawings in them are also incredible. Like the illustrators are amazing who design comic books. I think I got really lucky. My mom had read an article saying that kids who read comic books do better on their SATs, like on the <laughs> English. So I think like, I think she was hesitant at first to, to, um, to let me read so many, but after she read that, I think it was like, well, he's reading, so that's good. Yeah. And yeah. in addition to that, uh, yeah, the art, like, I mean, 
George Perez for me was the the number one artist as a kid. Like his the amount of detail he would put into mm. every panel, and I think that's really sort of I've I've tried to do that in my woodcuts. Yeah, and I I just remember looking at them, and I had some Western comic books, but I or American comic books, but you know I really loved. Japanese comic books as well as a kid and the ability to just draw a human body in every possible position from every possible angle whether they're like fighting or running mm-hmm. or sleeping or getting stabbed through the stomach it's it's kind of mind-boggling that level of expertise and and ability to think about the human form and render it it's they're incredible people these these comic book illustrators i think yeah i think the comic book artists have the the fundamentals really like it's so important for them i, mm. I think they have to use it like an economy of line they have to, to, to sort of communicate so much through yes. these little tiny pictures and yeah i think that the just the fundamentals of how to how the how the body moves how to make it dynamic mm. something i really admire yeah absolutely and then so how did you come to woodcut when did Printmaking come into your story. I was really lucky in high school. Uh, my my teacher, a guy called Dean Scott, he was really into printmaking, and so like my high school was was pretty pretty crap. <laughs> like <laughs> uh, we didn't have a lot in the way of facilities, and especially the art department. And somehow he managed to teach us printmaking. Like we did we did screen printing somehow. Um, we did etching. He had a little etching press, and we did uh, lino cuts. And I really like the process. I like the kind of graphic look you could get, the sort of contrast, the black and white. Mm. And I did a program before my senior year of high school. I did a program in Montserrat College of Art in Beverly, Massachusetts. It was like a three-week pre-college thing. And we had figure drawing, oil painting, and printmaking. Mm. And the printmaking teacher was uh, was a really cool guy called um, Haig Demargian. He's a great printmaker in his own right and he's a really wonderful teacher and so he had us do woodcuts and it was like the first time I made some art that I really liked that I was really happy with yeah and so it kind of stuck for there yeah I feel like that's such an important moment in an artist development is when you make something for the first time and you get that positive feedback from it Mm -hmm. and then I feel like that that's you know, just what you keep chasing, <laughs> you know, the ability to to create something and whether you're sort of slaving over it and, and or like, you know, whether it's something that you're, uh, comes to you really easily is that, you know, sometimes the best compositions just sort of flow out and you're like, what, why, why did that one so easy? But either way, you know, the first time you get that feedback and you feel pleased by what you produced, it's a really Yeah, and special excited moment. to make more, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. And so I, I have talked to other artists too, where they said things about how, you know, the first time they got that experience was with printmaking. And so it just was like, okay, this is my thing now. This is the, this is what I want. And I'm going to chase this dragon. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so did you end up studying printmaking in college then? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I was a printmaking major at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. And uh, there was great professors there and nice program. And I just sort of, it was a while before I made another piece that made me feel like the one I made in, um, in Montserrat. Mm-hmm. Like it was a few years, but, but um, when I started just focusing only on woodcuts and just kind of, you know, when you're, when you're in your first year or two, you do a lot of like a wider focus, right? You do like a lot of general kind of things. And I was doing oil painting. I was doing 
um, a lot of drawing. And of course, we had to take sculpture and photography classes. And and once I got to really just kind of sort of zoom in and focus in on woodcutting, I started to put together a series of work that I that I was feeling good about. Where does the move to Taiwan come in in all of this? So I, I had done a semester in Italy, in Florence, and I got kind of the bug, the the living abroad bug. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to move abroad after graduation. Uh, I, I just like the feeling of, of it's just kind of exciting. I mean, you know how it is, right? You live yeah. in a in a country that's not your own, where the language is not your own language and everything is different. And like, I just like that feeling of of things being kind of, you know, it's, it's hard to be complacent, right? And yeah. I think that's really good for creativity. Mm. And one of my professors, uh, uh, Frenchie Lunning, right before graduation told us, she said, the best advice I have for you going out into the world is a David Bowie quote. She says, uh, turn and face the strange. Aww. Wherever it's wherever it's like, you know, different, look there. That's where you're going to find your best art and put yourself in situations that are that are not comfortable. And so <laughs> that was part of it, too. Right. Yeah. I, I, I was looking for places I could go and I was trying to find somewhere where I could could work as an artist where eventually I could be a full time artist where I would have a lot of hours in the studio. And so I was looking all over the world at different countries and like really lucky to have a, a U.S. passport because you can you know go to different places and, and teach English and stuff like that. And so for Taiwan, they had like the the cost of living to the money you get ratio was the best. Mm. And the number of hours you have to teach to keep your visa was was 20 or 22 or something oh, like wow. that. That's really generously low. Yeah. So I was doing like 20 hours teaching and I was doing like 30 hours in the studio and, uh, you know, making enough to live comfortably and pay off my student loans. Mm, the and dream. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was. <laughs> And still managing to to get a lot of time in the studio, like almost full time art hours, you know, just being in the environment where everything is kind of exciting and new. And like I was I think I was 23. Mm. So it was like, you know, uh, I had a lot of energy for it at the time. Yes. <laughs> <It was> <laughs> yeah, I definitely understand that. And I, I love what you're saying about turn and face the strange, you know, as mm-hmm. as as a personal uh, devotee of Mr. Bowie, but then also you know, just as a practical way to kind of feed creativity and to feed the kind of stretchiness of mind that mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. really breeds fertile creative process. And I still just love everything I see in Bangkok that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were talking a little bit before about how, you know, Bangkok as a city is so overwhelming in terms of visual stimulus and you'll never take it all in. You'll never understand all of it. And, you know, you could be on the back of a motorbike and all of a sudden they take a, they take a shortcut and you're going down this little street under a bridge and you realize that it's nothing but small barber shops, you know, or something. You're <laughs> yeah. like, wait, what? I'm in the barbershop district? Like, what is this? <laughs> you know? And then it's gone. And you're just like, well, I'm never going to know why under that bridge there was a dozen barbershops. And, and I just feel like that kind of unexpected stimulus is just so good for the brain. Yeah. It's, it's definitely good for the, for the creativity, for the brain. And just, just the, like I said, you can't get complacent, right? Mm-hmm. When even doing the simplest task, you have to like prepare yourself, you know, yeah. um, trying to figure out how, okay, how am I going to explain this thing I need? Or, you know, I, I have to 
I got to go out. I got to find a place where I can can print postcards of my work, for example, right? Uh, like, uh-huh. how do I do that? Uh, what vocabulary do I have to learn? Where do I even find a place like that? You know, and, and you go in and you have to, to answer their questions and figure things out. And like, in, in almost every element you have that. And I mean, the longer you live somewhere, the easier it gets. But but it, it's still like, I've been here for 13 years and I'm still finding myself in these situations where, I, I, I don't know, it, it just... It keeps you on your toes. Mm. It's kind of nice. I think maybe because of the nature of of Thailand just being such a tourist destination, uh, and and you know Bangkok just being a giant cosmopolitan city, mm-hmm. it's very useful to learn Thai. And of course, I also find it quite polite to try Thai. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so I and and I've been studying for about eight months, and it is it is ranked as one of the more difficult languages in the world to learn. So people are very kind and patient with me. But mm-hmm. um, how about you and your Mandarin after 13 years? It, it sounds like you probably have some handle on it. But then, yeah, as you say, you kind of need to specifically look up, wait, what's the word for postcard probably or something like yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my Mandarin is like I can I, I can talk to people, I can get by, I can explain things if I need to, even if it's in a roundabout way. Mm. But there's always situations where there's certain you know, certain vocabulary, like, like, um, like crop marks, if you're getting something printed, right? Uh-huh, yeah. Like you have to learn these specific things. And it, it's interesting because I can talk really well about my art in Mandarin, but then there's certain areas that are more common that I have just not, I don't have any experience talking uh-huh. about. So, so my language ability is like, you know, a little kid in these certain ways, but I've done like, uh, like lectures in Mandarin about my work, you know, like artist talks and stuff like that. And so I can talk about Certain areas really fluently, and then other areas oh, not well really at all. Oh, that's really funny. I it's I, really weird. I hope, yeah, I hope that that's where I can get with my time, where I can just talk about art all day long, and then you know it's okay if the details of like an Italian menu, you know, escape mm-hmm. me that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so interesting, and I I, I definitely identify very much with what you're saying about that desire for newness and and novelty and i have no idea if this is if this is true or not but at one point somebody told me that there's actually a novelty seeking gene that some people have oh is that right yeah that it's like that that if you identify it in someone you can tell that they probably get stimulated by novelty you know rather than kind of like overwhelmed or that sort of feeling mm-hmm. of, un, of of not being safe that it's it it sort of feeds them and i i don't know i've always thought like yeah i feel like i definitely have that <laughs> well yeah, you live in bangkok right so probably have some some shade of it yeah so i'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk about your work in the specific um because you sure. just said you're you're a woodcut artist and you've taken on a few kind of, I think, quite ambitious projects and sort of stretching a bit what we think of what woodcut is or how we interact with it. So maybe to just get started, I'd like to talk about this woodcut room that you mm-hmm. created and what it is and how it came about and the actual process of creating it. Yeah, sure. Well, I made I made two. The first one I made was my senior project at, at MCAD, and it was my studio life-sized in 360 degrees yes so if you if you stand in the middle of the room like it's like you're in my studio except it's all it's all backwards right which is actually kind of funny i've exhibited it in taiwan a few times and you know it's been a long time since i've been in that old studio and so now 
in my memory, the space, it's confusing to me, which is which, like, which is the true right. space? Because I, I go in there and I'm like, yeah, this is right. But it's actually all, it's like bizarro world. Yeah. So that's kind of funny, like a funny sort of side effect. But um, it's also, um, it's also interesting because I can pick out every little thing on the wall and everything sort of on the shelves and kind of get these memories, which is, is really nice mm. kind of time travel. But I did that and then, and then I came to Taiwan and I had a residency in a warehouse and it was a huge warehouse. I had a one year, like one year residency in a place called stock 20. And so I had this giant space and I thought I need to make a giant woodcut, you know, to go for the space. Right. And so I had, uh, I had about eight months before the exhibition at the end of the thing. And so I decided I was going to do another, another installation like that, another room. Um, but this one was all like a imaginary landscape. Just to kind of give a sense of scale, uh, how big were the blocks that you were using and how many? Yeah, so the second installation is eight feet tall by 35 feet wide, approximately 35 mm -hmm. or 36 mm -hmm. feet. And so I was using uh, roughly four by eight foot woodcuts. I, I cut them down a little bit. Uh, they were maybe eight feet by, by three and a half or something like that. And I used 11 of them. And so there's three for each wall. And then the fourth wall has two of them with a space in the middle for the doorway, right? So you can go in and out. Mm. So it's, it's basically based on a, on a sort of three by three square. So like a nine foot square room, basically. Yeah. And there's a little bit of overlap in between each one so that they, they can kind of hang uh, without, a, without a gap, right? So like mm -hmm. I, would trace the, I would trace maybe two or three inches on each edge so that they would... They would um, cover each other there'd be a little bit of wiggle room for install for installing them because it's not like it's not the easiest thing to hang them all up and have them line up perfectly yeah yeah i can imagine if you were if you were dealing with a millimeter of a millimeter of a millimeter of space mm -hmm. between them yeah. that's yeah that's not a good way to go <laughs> yeah and then so in the exhibition how was it received how did people feel like walking into a room made like a an imagined landscape that's entirely inside of a woodcut like it was the there. full, yeah, the full range of of reactions, right? Some people thought it was really calming, really placid, and they would just sit there. Some people told me they would sit there for like an hour and just kind of meditate in this space. Um, my favorite thing about it was that it smelled like relief ink. Oh, you know, it was like this yeah. the smell of relief ink, which I really enjoy. Uh, and then other people, they were they would have like um, like panic, right? Like because it's super overwhelming. It's a really busy image mm. and like the ceiling is black fabric with uh with like christmas lights poking through and the doorway is also black fabric with like a slit down the middle so you're totally enclosed in this room and it's kind of dim and it can be claustrophobic right so so some people were really overwhelmed by it and some people would just like go there and hang out yeah that's so funny how art has that huge spectrum of reactions mm -hmm. it can elicit in people. And of course, that's part of the reason which makes it so fascinating and why I think the meaning of art is so slippery is because it's you bring your own anxieties and associations sure. in doing any work of art. And I imagine one that's so immersive like that, it's it's even more so. Yeah, I, I found it both simultaneously, actually. So mm. I, I would go in and stand in it or sit in it and kind of get these waves where I would feel like really calm and then like, oh, kind of overwhelmed and then kind of, <laughs> I, would, I would kind of oscillate between them. Yeah. 
I could I could definitely see that like being in a in a float tank or something or a mm-hmm. or um, a tanning booth. Yeah, it is. It's kind of like a float tank, though. Actually, I never thought about it that way. But you're right. It has kind of some of that to it, right? It's really peaceful, but at the same time, like claustrophobic. And so, why take on a project like that with woodcut? You know, why not make monumental drawings instead? What was mm-hmm. it about the woodcut process that added something to the experience for you? Part of it was, that's just my medium. Mm. Like that's, you know, at the time I was only doing woodcuts back in, this was in 2010 when I made this. So it was my medium for one. And I I liked the challenge of it. Uh, I liked these giant blocks and trying to figure out, you know, how to make it work. Uh, I liked the, for me, the carving is my favorite part. So yeah. I like the carving. Even it was it was like long, long nights of carving. I can imagine. Um, yeah. Even with eight months, like that's yeah. that's a lot of carving. I worked twelve hours a day, seven days a week, pretty much for eight months. Mm. Uh, I I think I took five days off. I went to to Shanghai for a couple of days, and that was pretty much my only time <laughs> out. It was my last year socially. Yeah. But it was that the challenge of it, and and I mean. With with monumental drawings, right? You can't get the feeling of of a woodcut that mm. that I've tr- I've tried to reproduce the woodcut feeling in drawings, and I just find that that I can't I can't capture it. I don't know. There's something there that I, I love about the woodcuts that that I can't figure out how to reproduce in drawings. That's a really I think significant point too, and one that I always love to talk about is the power of the unique aesthetic that you can get from each printmaking process. Mm-hmm. You know, in in the sense of you really can't make a drawing that looks like an etching and you really yeah, can't make a drawing that looks like a woodcut even. And, and you can, you know, you can choose to sort of cross hatch or stylize or shade in the way that you would with a woodcut, but it's still not the same. You know, the, the, the especially the, the quality of the blacks mm-hmm. is not going to be the same. Um, the quality of yeah, the edge isn't going to be the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 That's, that's right. There's, there's this sort of, um, I don't know. And even like you can tell the difference between a woodcut and a lino cut too, right? If you look at, mm-hmm. you, you can tell it's a lino cut or a woodcut and there's a, a certain quality to both. Like they each have their own unique thing that's special to them and, and can't be, I don't know, can't be, can't be captured. You can't, can't reproduce that. And so you have this, this one kind of ambitious projects which you've done, which is, you know, making these two immersive woodcut rooms mm-hmm. and then you have this other kind of ambitious project which is to create a woodcut comic book that's, that's 450 right. pages so <laughs> why well, would you do that yeah <laughs> i cheated because it's only 225 woodcuts oh oh well never I did, mind i did it as a yeah yeah, yeah this, spread, this interview so. is over now that, yeah <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah well i mean like i said like i grew up with comic books so i always wanted to do comic books and actually the it, it, the project came out of the installation. So the installation is this this big landscape that. Uh, so at the time, like in the sort of culture, everybody was on about the the apocalypse, the end times. Mm-hmm. There's all these movies, all these books were coming out. Everything was mm-hmm. kind of this was like in the 2012? air. Twelve. This was 2010. So it was leading up to 2012. Yeah, because right? I feel like yeah. 2012 was supposed to be. Something. It was supposed to be the end of the world, right? End of the world yeah, for some yeah. reason. End, end of the Mayan calendar, something like yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I remember. So the the installation has all these different. And times things. I thought, like, what would happen if they all happened at the same time, right? Because everybody was convinced that their thing is real, you know. So, whatever your whatever your beliefs are, whatever you think is going to happen, you you think that that's the right one. And and there's so many people who think that theirs is the right one. And I thought, well, what if everybody's right? 
So the content of the installation was all these, was everybody's right. What would that look like? And so I kind of put that in the, <laughs> in the landscape. And then I thought, I, I, I kind of want to go back in and figure out what leads up to this. So that was the starting point for the, the comic. I uh, was trying to like figure out kind of go back and explain retroactively what's going on in this installation. So the installation is actually the end part of the comic. Mm. Um, I, spoiler alert, I guess. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> like, uh, that was at least, that was the, the, the idea for it. And, and once again, woodcut was my, my medium. I wanted to do woodcut, uh, the look of it, right? The, mm. I feel like the, the pages of the comic, there's a sort of quality, there's a weirdness. I, it, I mean, it's a weird story. And and the pictures are kind of there's a weirdness to the pictures that goes along. I think it matches the tone. I don't think I would have been able to capture that mm. in in drawings. And in addition to that, uh, I, I've always wanted to. I never got around to it, but I always wanted to make like a sort of an artist book out of it. Mm. So um, I, I think I, I wanted to print print all the woodcuts. And then in the interleaving paper, I wanted to print the text kind of like on the vellum or whatever so that you could, you could have it as the interleaf so you could read the story oh, uh-huh. and sort of stack them up, right? Yeah. And, and I want to build like a beautiful kind of box to put them in and make this kind of, you know, this sort of traditional artist book. Uh, one, of my, one of my professors in college was uh, Jody Williams, and she was making all these beautiful artist books all the time and and building these little boxes she built mm. these little filing cabinets like mm. tiny ones with this nice paper and stuff and i always wanted to do that and i haven't gotten around to it but uh i i, I hope to and i'm i'm working on the second woodcut graphic novel now it's going to be out at the end of the year i i think i'm going to to do it for that so to make like a small edition maybe three three or four of these like artist books so that was kind Lovely. of the 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 real final piece that i wanted to put together and and so, do you also carve the text as well? No, the, the text oh, is digital. Oh, thank God! Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. I mean, like, I you would truly my... be mad if that was, you know. Yeah. Oh man, can you imagine all that backwards at that size? Yeah, and and like because all the woodblocks are actual tiny. size, it'd yeah. be tiny. Oh my gosh! Um, and you know, uh, and just miscarving, you know, one part of a K and it, you know, oh, turning oh, into the whole a P thing again. And, yeah, like yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, no thanks. Yeah. But I, I turned my handwriting into a font and I used that as the text. Mm. So I, I was trying to find a font that matched the art and I couldn't. I couldn't. So. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense then. Yeah, to use your own. And so what's the second comic about? Uh, it's part two, actually. <laughs> so I did, for whatever reason, I wanted to do a three part thing. Okay. Uh, and so the, the, first, the first one I wanted to make in my 20s. And the second one is being made in my 30s. And then the next one I'll make in my 40s. And so it's kind of a, I want to see sort of where my head is at in each, mm. in each decade. So it's kind of, um, it's a partial self-portrait, at least as far as sort of technique and what, what I'm thinking about, what's kind of going on. Because <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. it takes years to make, right? So the first one took me two and a half years. And the one I'm working on now, I've been kind of working on it as a, as a sort of sort of a side project for about four four or five years, so it's kind of like I'll I'll work on it for a couple months and then I'll do other stuff and then come back and work on it for a couple months and do other stuff. So it's it's part two of this it's part two of the story of of the first one, I guess. Okay, is it still apocalypse? Yeah, it's it's weird actually. I, I read the I read the first one for uh, the first time in a while last week, I think, because I'm sort of getting into the final stage of the second one. I wanted to make sure everything was fresh in my head. Yeah. 
And yeah, it's it's kind of weird how sort of society went <laughs> from what I was thinking <laughs> about then. And and so like it's more a portrait of society, I guess, than a exploration of apocalypses. Mm. But I, I guess there's some overlap in that as well. But but going back and looking at the first one, I thought actually this is a portrait of all of us, right? Like of yeah. of it's a macro portrait of of at least the Western human civilization. Well, I think for me, you know, watching apocalypse movies or zombie movies or, or any kind of those big disaster movies, the only part that I ever feel really disturbed by is the human behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, like the idea of an asteroid hitting Earth or even zombies, I'm sort of like, yeah, you know. That's fine. Like, we've had a good run. But when it gets into, like, actually how human beings would treat each other in those circumstances is when it when I get, when I get like, the bad anxiety feelings, truly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's yeah. That's right. And I think is in its own way, a much richer vein to mine in terms of what do we do with this, you know? Because yeah. this we have some control over, we think we do, in a way that, you know, a giant asteroid, like, well, okay, well, that's, you don't got to worry about that. I can't control it, you know? Yeah, we didn't do that to ourselves. Yeah, yeah. What's well, weird, the first, the first, comic was about how um, it was sort of about confirmation bias and how everybody sort of sees a, an objective event that's happening but decides that they know what what it's about right uh -huh. and there's really no evidence for anybody being right or wrong but every sort of every everybody decides they know what it is depending on their pre-existing worldview and they sort of they harden into these groups and everybody kind of isolates into these bubbles. Oh man, this and is it sounding was, it was, way too was, familiar. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit too, it's a little too real, right? Oh no, like, John. <laughs> this was happening in the in the sort of internet back then, right? Because yeah. I, I worked on this from 20, 2012 or 2013 to, it, it came out in 2015 and it was kind of happening, right? Every, yeah. Everybody, social media was sort of not not super new, but new. And and it was kind of it was going in that direction and everybody was kind of coalescing into these really hardened groups where truth didn't mean anything. Right. Like truth meant whatever everybody decided it meant in their own sort of niche. And so I'm finding that's kind of um, maybe a more interesting thing to explore mm. than than apocalypses, although those are fun, too. And that's yeah. a, and I guess that's a kind of apocalypse as well, isn't it? Right, like everybody deciding that there's no objective truth, and yes. and there's a million different truths is is how it's going to be. I mean, how do we how do we move forward from that? So maybe that's, I guess the yeah. like you said, the scariest apocalypse. It's truly, truly. There's there's a really wonderful podcast series called The Last Archive. Have you listened to it? I have not, no. It's actually, the first season is the murder mystery, and the murder mystery is Who Killed Truth? And she goes back kind of really specifically within the U.S., but mm -hmm. to look at these instances in the way we sort of chose what truth meant, how do we trust people, and how it got sort of dismantled, you know, leading up to the high conspiracy theory, distrust of the media, distrust of our neighbor that the U.S. and other places are experiencing right now. Yeah, it's uh, it's very much this question of like, how did we get here? And how it can really, you know, it can really do your head in because it's just kind of like, I think maybe particularly like living abroad and kind of being on the outside looking in and seeing how our homeland and what it's going through, but then also not experiencing it firsthand is so... It's so strange. Yeah. Yeah. Disorienting is the right word for it. It, it is it is absolutely that. 
it, it feels so close and so far at the same time, right? Mm, mm-hmm. Like, because I, I, I understand the American society and politics and all of that much, much better than I do the Taiwanese. Mm-hmm. You know, even I've lived here for a long time. I, I it, there's so much complexity. You know, and every every society has their their deep history and and complexity and all these things and all these reasons for why things have become the way they are. And even though I live here, I'm much less sort of plugged into to that than I am what's going on in the US, you know? Mm. And it's kind of like feel like have a foot on on two boats that are kind of moving away from each <laughs> right. other and like Yeah. It's an interesting perspective from which to to make art, you know? Yeah, definitely. And that and to be thinking about a culture that is that is yours but you're also somewhat separate from, it's a really it's a really interesting place to be and and I think particularly when you're talking about truth and like, you know, why you understand something and, you know, is it, is it seeing it with your own eyes? Is it seeing a documentation? Is it seeing a, uh, a, a meme? You know, I, I heard, mm-hmm. um, I think may, it might've been on the last archive podcast, but this, this study about how if you put a picture with words, people will are like something insane, like 60% more likely to think it's true. So if you just put the words on a screen that like, um, let's say, uh, wind turbines actually kill 300,000 people a year in the Netherlands or something, and you just mm-hmm. have this insane fact. But if you put a picture of a wind turbine, <laughs> like it's in the believable. photo, it's more believable. So this kind of crazy things. And then I always think about too, how, you know, I feel like I have a handle on the truth, but you know, that's, that's just because I believe NPR over QAnon. And right, that's right. just because I was raised that way. You know? and, I mean, everybody has, quote unquote, good reason for believing what they do, right? Like mm-hmm. if you could go into their head, if you if you were them, you would believe that, right? Exactly. Like, that's what I think it, about. Yeah. And so, yeah, your, whatever your life experience that led you to the point, you that's another thing, right? So is there such a thing as the truth? Is another question, you know, like, I guess we take for granted that there should be an objective truth, but maybe there shouldn't be. <laughs> and what is that? How do, how do we go forward with that? But what you were saying about the, the words and the pictures next to each other, that's a great reason to make comic books, isn't it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's all words and pictures next to each other. Yeah. So speaking, I guess, of just the, the internet and social media and, and all of that, you mentioned in your introduction, and I've seen a little bit of it, that you have a Twitch account for your woodcuts. Mm-hmm, and yeah. I'd love for you to talk about that experience a little bit. And I see that, you know, you're set up with a mic and you, you know, you talk to people as you go. How did you come up with the idea and, and what's it like kind of building that community? Yeah, it's been a it's been an interesting experience. I started uh, live streaming in September. And I, I started because I was I was in this this phase where I decided anybody who suggests that I do something I'm just going to do it, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, as an artist, sometimes you get people suggesting things and sometimes you go, oh, that's a great idea and sometimes not. And I thought, okay, for the next however many, whatever, I'm just, you know, I didn't tell anybody. I just thought it like I'm going to, anything anybody suggests, I'm just going to do. Mm-hmm. And coincidentally, one of the other resident artists in the studio here, uh, a guy called Darius Desmond, he he said, hey, have you ever done Twitch? Like, I think you'd be good at it, you, you, you know, because... He, I guess he was messing around on Twitch, like just doodling something and some people were watching and, and he was kind of just interested in it. And I was like, well, I never thought about it before, but I guess I got to try now that he suggested I do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad he did. And I'm, and I'm glad that 
that I, I went along with it. I mean, it's kind of a turn and face the strange experience as well. Cause I had never like, I mean, I'm a woodcutter. I'm not a IT guy. Yeah. No, I mean, how do I, how do you set up cameras and microphones and things like that when you're used to carving wood? But I think that, so with the other resident artists here in my physical space, we've, we've run a gallery since 2010, we've had monthly exhibitions. And so every month we have an opening and every month we have people come in and we open our studios. And so I have a lot of experience just talking to strangers about art, about my work and about other people's work, you know, hanging out in, in the studio, people come in and they just talk to you. So mm. I already had this kind of a skill set. And so it turns out like live streaming is pretty natural extension of that because it's just strangers coming in, typing questions and comments at you in the chat and then you reply and you talk and you, you just kind of have to just, I don't know, it, it's a little bit weird at first and then you, you get used to it and now it yeah. seems like the most normal thing in the world. Yeah. And I think it's got to be such an interesting way for people to be exposed to the medium, I think, mm -hmm. um, because I, because there's not a huge amount of education often about printmaking. I do think that there's often a disconnect for people, you know, between mm -hmm. seeing, okay, I'm seeing this like kind of black and white binary image on the wall and you're telling me it's made of wood. Like, you know, they tend to, they can be a lot of confusion about it as I'm sure you've experienced in your career, but actually to be able to see someone drawing and carving and going through the process, I, mm -hmm. it's, it has to really be a great way for people to kind of understand your work better as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really, oftentimes you have to explain to somebody how it's done, right? Cause people come in and say, Hey, what are you doing? Are you carving wood? And, and you can see like, um, you know, people start to get it and, and the reaction is, wow, that's so cool. And there's a large, uh, art community on Twitch. They're all really friendly people. Like it's mm. the nicest. I, I, there's, I haven't encountered a single troll so far. Oh, uh, you touch know, wood. knock on wood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I guess I've, I've ruined that for myself now by saying it, but there's like, everybody's just super friendly and like genuine. And there's a lot of artists, you know, mostly it's mostly digital artists, but there's a lot of, there's a, there's a fair amount of traditional artists and, and so they're used to doing, you know, drawing or kind of illustration style work. And you can see the excitement people being introduced to to a new technique. A few of the artists I know actually have started doing woodcuts um, from watching me do it, which is really cool to see. And I don't there's like maybe two or three other woodcutters on Twitch that I know of. Uh, and they're all on different time zones than me. So I never get oh, to nice. see them, unfortunately, yeah. but there's not too many of us. And so do you take requests from people or are you working on whatever you happen to be working on that day? I do custom stuff if people want. So like I'll do commissions and mm. part of the, part of the commissions is, uh, if people want me to do it live on the live stream, I'll do it live on the live stream. So, so a lot of people request that. So I'll do that or I'll work on, I, I do kind of a mix so I, because I, I do drawing, I do carving, I do printing, and I also, um, I paint a lot of them with watercolor. I like to do varied editions. Mm. So instead of doing uh, multi-block, I'll do hand-painted. So I try to sort of, I try to do mostly carving. So like I have all these pages for my, for my comic that's, that I'm trying to put up by the end of the year. So I, I'll, I'll do a lot of carving of that, but I also make pieces from start to finish. So I'll, you know, I'll do like a little uh, A5 or A6 size uh, block and you know I'll do one or two shows where I'll draw it and then I'll do another one or two shows where I'll carve it I'll print it you know I hand print on the on the live stream with a spoon mm. and sort of show the technique and talk about the technique and then the next show when it's when the ink is dry you know I'll paint them 
and I'll sign a number at the bottom and talk about varied editions and stuff like that. Ah, so, so yeah, cool. try to do try to do the whole process. And then, you know, people can go back and watch the VODs, like the old recordings. They stay up for a couple of weeks if they miss part of it and want to see or just tune in next week. So I'll probably be drawing a different one, you know, but I try to mix it up and I try to do a a good mix of of all the different techniques. About what time are you usually streaming if people wanted to find you? Uh, So I do it 10 a.m. on Tuesdays, uh, Taiwan time and 1.30 p.m. on Fridays, Taiwan time. Right now, we're 12 hours ahead of Eastern Standard Time in the U.S. Okay, yeah. I was thinking that probably yeah. the 10 a.m. is easier yeah. to catch, you know? <laughs> yeah, so it's 10 p.m. on the East Coast Monday night and 1.30 a.m. Friday on the East Coast as well. But, you know, you get a lot of people who uh, are insomniacs. Yeah. And actually, a lot of people tell me that that watching me carve is really relaxing and it helps them fall asleep. So uh, I, I take that as a compliment, I guess. not being it's really boring but it's really soothing (laughs) but then also uh, for the for the west coast that's a little bit easier right because it's yeah yeah yeah. i get more west coast people yeah Mm. so both of those are a bit more doable for uh seattle you know la crowd so but of course there's people from asia who Mm -hmm. watch and australia and you know randomly taiwanese people going wait what (laughs) what is this yeah well i'll we'll definitely put a link to your your twitch stream um, because yeah, I'm, I'm keen now. Like, I just think that actually does sound incredibly re- relaxing, just watching a skilled woodcut artist mm-hmm. do their practice. And, and you, you've got really quite the cool setup. Cause I, I did watch some of the, what are the, there's a fancy Twitch word for the archived videos. It sounded like the VODs. The VODs. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Demand, I, I think okay. Gotcha. I, I did go back and watch some of the VODs and, you know, you have mm-hmm. like a detailed camera for the block, but then you can also just sort of mm-hmm. see you in the studio and. Yeah, you're, you're you're set up making it. I think very um, very easy to actually see what you're doing, which is not necessarily, I think, an easy task when it comes to uh, documenting in a comfortable way what's actually going on. Yeah. In well, thank you. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of tweaking and a lot of kind of trying to improve and figuring out what works and what doesn't. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm starting to approach full on good setup. Yeah, yeah. I, we, I think that that we're starting that. Here after you know two years of having this mm-hmm. podcast, you know, like, like a year and a half, and we're like, we should probably get that pop filter, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, exactly. Yeah, but I think the the biggest benefit to doing the live stream, it, to doing it for me, is that when people are watching you draw, you, you know, you don't take shortcuts you might take oh, when you're just yeah. alone in your studio. Like I'm so much more like focused on trying to improve my my drawing skills, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I think my carving is fine. I'm I, actually, it's strangely enough, the least stressful thing for me to do is to carve. Mm. But like drawing in front of a bunch of strangers is weird. <laughs> yeah. And so you're like, oh, man, I really need to like practice. So I've been practicing a lot more and my drawing has gotten better just from the fact that people are watching me draw. So like it's it's been a weird, really, really nice unforeseen benefit that my actual skills are improving oh, just yeah. from the virtue of that. That's so interesting. Yeah. That feels sort of like a like a brain hack or something by just mm-hmm. like yeah. giving yourself social pressure. Yeah, exactly. Put yeah. yourself in front of people. A lot of and a lot of people who watch are other artists, right? So you know, right. like they know what you're doing. They know they know the drawing part at least. I feel like I, the carving, I can I can kind of BS it if yeah. you know. But my drawing, yeah. like, there's a lot of people who can draw. Yeah, and I need I need to, um, you know, I, I feel the pressure to be good at that. Definitely. I'm also really keen to hear you speak to starting this 
nonprofit community art space, particularly, you know, in a country that's not your own? And what kind of an undertaking that would be? And and part of that might be my Bangkok perspective, because Thailand has quite strict laws about who can start what on Thai soil. Um, yeah, and I'm yeah. sure it varies a lot from country to country. So like, how did you take it on? What was it like doing it through a language barrier, finding people to populate it? Tell us that story. Yeah, well, my first two years in Taiwan, I was just kind of, I had an apartment with a little studio space and I was like really looking for the art scene and it was hard to find. So I'm not mm. in Taipei, I'm in Taichung. The, mm. it's, it's now the second city. It was the third city when I moved here. And like there was an art scene, but it was the local art scene. It was the Taiwanese artists and the language barrier and not being able to read. I mean, mm. just the, you know, uh, characters, Mandarin characters, like it, it's not like you can kind of sound it out no, and yeah. figure out what, what is being <laughs> written. It's just totally abstract if you don't know what it is. So it was really difficult to find the art scene to get to get into it. And like coming from Minneapolis, which has such a rich like art scene to it. Minneapolis is so, so great. There's so much to do, so much art and music, and every day there's something going on. And then just to come here and feel like there was there was nothing, at least nothing accessible. And I was meeting all of these other other foreigners who were living here who were like artistic or artists themselves, you know, because oftentimes the kind of person who will come live here to do this is the person who's sort of more creative, right? Mm-hmm. At least I find that the community here is generally quite creative. And so there's a lot of people who are artists or who like doing art. And so I was thinking like, you know, instead of instead of lamenting the lack of a scene, just make one Yeah. <laughs> so that there would be one. Right. That's like the nice thing. So if I was in New York City, I, I couldn't do anything. You can't make your mark. Right. It's really hard when there's a lot going on to to, to do your own thing. And so the, the upside is that there's a lot going on, a lot to do. But uh, so the, the the downside here was that there wasn't a lot that I could find that was going on, but the upside was I could make it, right? Mm, make my own. Yeah, there's something really kind of thrilling about that too, I have to say though. Like it's one thing when you show up and you're a little fish in a big pond and it's another when you show up and you're like, oh shit, man, there's no pond yet. You pond, know? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, get the hose. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so I had that residency in that warehouse and the warehouse was enormous. And so for part of my proposal for it, uh, uh, I proposed to do the the big woodcut, the installation. But my other part of my proposal for what I was going to do with the space for the year was I was going to set up a little gallery in the front of the warehouse. And I had all these artists who I knew, and I was just going to give them a show and they could have an exhibition. And so that's what I did the first year. And I had, you know, probably 10 or 11 exhibitions that year in the in the space. And it was really successful and everybody liked it and and it worked well. So... After the residency ended, I found a building that I could rent that had like the kind of right layout for artist studios and a gallery. And so then I found a couple of other artists who who wanted studio space and invited them to share the space with me. And we all kind of ran the gallery together. We we found a bunch of artists who wanted to have a show and we just sort of said, yeah, it's it's, it's pretty easy. Like it's not it's not a huge undertaking. Like there's no money involved. We don't take right. any money. It's like, come here, put up your show. We'll invite people and they can come see it. And and it doesn't have to be that hard, right? Yeah, that sounds so, so nice. We've done monthly exhibitions ever since. So we've had, I guess, over 100 shows. Yeah. We had the 11th anniversary this year. And there's been a bunch of different resident artists who've come and gone in the space as well. So there's, there's um, right now there's three of us who are, have studios here. And it's sort of, it's fluctuated over the years. And, and some people come in. We've had musicians as well. 
um, stay here. And we've run workshops and had like live music in the gallery. Oh, that what a sounds like an amazing community there. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice. And basically go to the tax office and get a document for the legal side of it, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm a permanent resident here, so I can do whatever job any local can do. Mm. Um, so that's good. Yeah, I think it's a little less strict than in some other countries in the area. Yeah. But also like we don't we don't do we don't we're not making money either. So like that's part of it. Well, um, what's the what's the name of the art space if people wanted to follow that or I don't know, maybe even come visit sometime? Yeah, it's called Lay Gallery, L-E-I. Great. Lay Gallery or Lay, Lay Studios is the sort of the umbrella, I guess what you would say. Yeah. And does do they have does Lay have its own social media, like Instagram people could follow? or Our Facebook, we have a Facebook okay. and we have um, we have a YouTube channel that's sort of the, myself and the other resident artists, we have our like playlists on the YouTube channel and then there's a playlist for the, uh, for the gallery. So we've just started doing the YouTube thing. So we're going to put out a video every month when we have our exhibition. But the Facebook page is probably the best place to see when we have, when we have openings. So we try to do every month, although we had to cancel June because mm-hmm. Taiwan just went into the first lockdown we've ever had from COVID. Well, in the time that we have left, I'd love to kind of talk about that, I don't know, third, fourth arm that you mentioned of what you do, uh, which is being a tattoo artist and having done a, a tattoo apprenticeship for five years. Yeah, that, that was <laughs> that was a real turn and face the strange. Yeah. How did that come to be? I was getting my first tattoo. I had a friend, a friend was visiting from New York, a friend, uh, a college friend of mine, and uh, she wanted to get a tattoo. And I thought, well, I don't have a tattoo, so I'll get one too. And the other two artists who were residents here decided they were going to get tattoos as well. So the four of us went off and we went to this tattoo studio that my friend recommended. It was downstairs from his house. And I was getting a tattoo and the, the guy was talking to me and he asked what I did. And I told him I was an artist. And he said he was looking for an apprentice and asked if I wanted to be it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and and so, like, I mean, he doesn't speak any English. And it was, you know, it's really intimidating. But, like, you have to say yes, right? Yeah, like, you got to. Got to say yes. So I asked him how much it would cost. He said, no, it doesn't cost you anything. Just when you start tattooing, you give me half until the apprenticeship is over. And he would teach me and provide all the materials, provide a space to do it. it sounded like a pretty good deal to me. Uh, and it was a great deal. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. And it's something I never thought I would do. Uh, and it was really good for my Mandarin for one, like Mm. having to learn how to do tattooing, which is a stressful thing to learn how to do. Like putting, putting ink in somebody's skin that's permanent is (laughs) forever. Yeah. Forever. There's no, no erasing, no, no going back, but it's a lot like actually carving a woodcut because you know, you need a steady hand. There's no erase (laughs) button. There's no, there's no control Z. There's no eraser. Once you make the mark, you got to make that mark work. Yeah. I can see it. I can see it. So there was kind of a natural sort of, I mean, it's a bit of a stretch, but there was kind of a natural connection between woodcutting and tattooing in that sense. So, you know, you just carefully make your marks and use it, have a steady hand. Try not to stab yourself. Mm. I mean, it's way worse if you stab yourself with a tattoo needle than with a woodcutting tool too. (laughs) So how many, like, do you still actively tattoo? Do you? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So that's like another thing that you do. Yeah, I do. It's a a side side thing. I do do maybe one every, every week or two. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then is it, you know, kind of like your own designs or do people come and say, oh, here's here's a, a butterfly for my grandma that I saw on Pinterest. Can you do this? Uh, both. OK. Yeah. 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 But yeah. if they if they give me a, a picture from Pinterest, I'll draw my own version of it. Like mm. I, I don't want to 
some people draw their own thing and say, can you do this? Of course, you know, mm, if, mm-hmm. it's, if, if they own the, if it's their intellectual property. Right. <laughs> yeah. Too. yeah. But yeah, I prefer to do my own, my own stuff, but it, it's, it's fun to do. I mean, it's a fun challenge drawing something that, that, uh, I haven't drawn before, you know, mm-hmm. so somebody, somebody gives a few different pieces of reference and says like, I want it kind of like this, but with these colors or with this kind of thing, this style, like it's an interesting challenge. And it brings me back to the days of listening to my classmates who are graphic designers talk about their experience with clients, you know? Yeah. It sounds very much similar to, uh, people who work in, in that field, you know, is that, mm-hmm. that sort of back and forth. So did you end up getting many more tattoos after your first one? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was getting, I got one every year for a while. It's been, I guess it's been a few years since I've gotten one, but, <laughs> but yeah, I've got a, a half sleeves worth. Well, John, where can people find you and follow all of your projects? I mean, you, you mentioned Twitch, but where <laughs> else are you out on the internet? Uh, my website is jrenzella.net and that that has most of my stuff on it. Uh, I try to post every day on Instagram. Mm, mm-hmm. So around the time I started doing Twitch, I thought, I guess I should try to <laughs> post every day on Instagram too. Why not? I'm going all in. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so I try to post something every day on Instagram as well. Uh, so that's J underscore Renzella. And yeah, and the Lay, the Lay Studios YouTube channel, Lay Studios on YouTube. We try to put something out every week. So either myself or the other resident artists here or the exhibiting artists in the gallery. That sounds really wonderful, and I look forward to to following you and Lay Studios, and hopefully dropping in on your Twitch sometime. And you know, maybe I can be yeah, your first thanks. troll. You know, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah, come on and troll me. <laughs> your first, your first heckler. <laughs> you know, <laughs> great. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week to celebrate our one hundredth episode with a very special guest, my friend and mentor, Dr. Pia Cunio. We'll talk about coming to printmaking from pre-med, the history of printmaking technology, and what makes a good art historian. And remember, print friends, we'll be coming to you with a fresh new look, so keep your eyes peeled for that in your feed. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. 